if you were to study life on this planet for, let's say, the last 300 years, there's probably a few phrases you could use to define the period. I think one of them would be the age of innovation. Just listen to a cursory list of names. It's quite remarkable. Albert Einstein, Francis Crick, Eric Kandel. Most of you know what these people have accomplished. Louis Pasteur, Maria Curie, Jonas Salk, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Life as we know it today is vastly different from all those who have come before us due to these men and women. In fact, the age of innovation, if you think about it, there's probably been more innovation in the last 300 years than any 300-year time period, and maybe of all time. It's quite remarkable to look back and see what's been accomplished. Innovation has been so consistent over this period that it's given rise in modern culture to an axiom that's used almost in every industry and every part of life, and it's this, innovate or die. Uh, if you don't believe that's true, ask the, the former workers of Yahoo, Blockbuster, and BlackBerry, and they'll tell you it's true. Even the church has become innovative. Praise the Lord, right? We've taken a timeless truth, God's word, but we're using it in new and innovative ways, and I applaud those churches uh, who were taking risks to get the word of God out. But there's been one exception to this premise, and in my learning, it's been the Coca-Cola company. Now, bear with me on this. Since its founding in 1892, they have relied on a secret recipe that's never been altered. They've never innovated at all. And it's made them one of the most recognizable and distinguished brands in all the world. Now, a note to all you Pepsi drinkers out there. We love you. You can be members of the church. We'll serve you. We'll visit you when you're sick. And we'll give you the right hand of fellowship. But no, we are a Coke church. Just thought I'd get that out there. Nothing like starting the new year by offending people. Somewhere out there, there's a secret vault, probably guarded by security guards, that holds the secret recipe and the necessary ingredients that make Coca-Cola the beverage we all love and enjoy. Now, I wanted to start with that illustration because I've discovered something in life. I've been reading the Bible for a very long time. I've been studying Bible characters. I'm amazed by the Hebrews 11 cohort that serve God in amazing ways. I'm a reader of biographies. It's my favorite genre. I've read over a hundred biographies. Everything from rock stars to politicians, church leaders, and everything in between. I'm just drawn to it. And the one thing I've discovered is, as you look at people that have achieved in life and fulfilled their calling, there's a set of necessary ingredients that made them who they were. For life to thrive, for us to flourish, for life to have a purpose in all that God created for us, I think there are five necessary ingredients. Now, they're no secret. They're all over the stage because we want to burn them into your consciousness. They are purpose, intimacy, courage, optimism, and resiliency. Develop these traits in your life and you will walk out your calling and be a success regardless of trials and circumstances in who God's called you to be. In the next five weeks, we're going to look at these in great detail. We're going to mine out the truths of God's word and look at these necessary ingredients. I can't think of a better way to start 2016. I've never been so excited for to grow and for you to grow in the knowledge of Christ, the fellowship of suffering, and the power of the resurrection. Uh, everyone on the way in received a recipe card, okay? That's for you to take notes, jot down what I say or what the Spirit's saying. But I want everybody to do this at the end, and we built time in for this. I want you to grade yourself every week on the particular trait we're talking about. So at the end of this talk, you're going to say, where am I in purpose? Am I a one, which is least, or a five in fulfilling God's purpose for me living on this planet? 
I think at the end of the month, a lot will have been accomplished. Now, we're going to look at a lot of Bible characters. We're going to tell you some great men and women I've read about in my biographies. But I want to start with the first man, Adam. He's a wonderful case study because he's the only person who ever knew life as God intended before the fall and now the life we live with pain and suffering and those types of things. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world in six days and says it's good. God rests on the seventh day. And he gives Adam a mission statement. Listen to this. You've heard it before. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, the early part of that is easy, right? Be fruitful, multiply. I mean, God's going to give him a, a wife, and, you know, that, that kind of always works itself out. I get that. But this word subdue caught my attention, so I looked it up in the dictionary. It's a verb. That means it's action-oriented. You know, when we go to heaven, we're not going to sit around on clouds playing harps, eating bonbons, right? God made us action-oriented people. That's why we love the NFL and the movie Gladiator, because he made us action-oriented. To subdue means to conquer, to overcome by superior force, to bring under mental or emotional control. Listen, by persuasion. God made us in his image. He made us the height of his creation. He made us creative. He endowed in us certain gifts that we could subdue all of creation. My favorite definition of subdue is to bring under cultivation. The word horticulture comes from the Latin. You know what it means? It means to take raw ingredients and make something of it. So if you go to Longwood Gardens, you look at the beauty of those gardens. What that means is a whole bunch of people took dirt and seeds, mixed them all together to make that beautiful cultural thing that we love. If you go to uh, an orchestra, they're taking seven musical notes and making wonderful music. And we call that culture. So God's desire for Adam, you and me, is to be culture builders, or as my friend Andy Crouch would say, to make something of this world, to flourish and fly as God's creation, to have a purpose in this life. When God created the world, he left some of it undone. The world Adam came into had ground to till, um, territory to be gained, animals to name, families to raise, houses of worship to establish, government and cities to build. Adam had all the raw materials to make something of this world to thrive and to have a purpose as God's creation. We're going to look at purpose at the end of this message. The second ingredient we're going to look at is intimacy. You can have the greatest purpose in all the world, and we'll look at some people in history who have, but without intimacy, you will never flourish in this life. God looked at Adam in a perfect world with all resources And after saying everything was good and very good, God said, "Uh uh-oh, something's not good. Still paradise. The man is alone. So you know the story. God put Adam to sleep. He took out of his side the rib. He fashioned it into Eve. Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined as one flesh. And what Adam saw in Eve was something that he never had with all the animals and all of creation, and that was intimacy. Intimacy, in, in the easiest definition, is the, is the understanding and celebrating of each other's innermost worlds. Now, Adam had fellowship with God. That's very important. Because super, uber spiritual people will say, well, I don't need anybody. I have God. Well, Adam had God, and God said that wasn't good enough. God created us to have intimacy with one another. 
And I've talked about this. I've written about it in The Genius of Marriage. But it goes beyond marriage. In fact, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time next week talking about friendship. If, if anything's lacking in the evangelical community, it's men and women who should be shrinking in their seats now, right now who couldn't name two or three intimate, close friends. And I don't say that to condemn you. I say that as an encouragement that we need to walk this road together. The third necessary ingredient to life is courage. You think about Adam. He lived in a perfect world. Sin marred that. All of a sudden, Eve is in pain giving birth to children. He's tilling the ground by the sweat of his brow. Zits are popping out. He's getting a pop belly. Like bad things are starting to happen to Adam, right? And he needed the courage to continue to live, to believe God for great things. Courage is all the way through the Bible. We'll talk a lot about it. On January 17th, when we talk about courage, for the first time in our church's history, we're going to honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, whose holiday is the very next day. Our guest speaker that day will be Chief Kelvin Cochran, the former fire commissioner, 30 years in the Atlanta Fire Company. And the reason he's former is because he was fired because he wrote a devotional for his church. Someone read it and they fired him. Now, that was a bad move on the devil's part, because now he travels the world telling his story. He just got back from Kenya. He's been in all the major conferences. This will be the most memorable Sunday of 2016. You need to go on the highways and byways and compel people to be here. There's going to be great fruit from that day. The fourth necessary ingredient is optimism. You might say, well, why, Pastor Bob? Let me ask you a quick question. Would you rather spend an hour with an optimist or a pessimist? Yeah, probably the optimist, right? We're going to talk about the difference between optimism and faith, and uh, it's going to be kind of a fun day. We'll have a lot of fun that day. And then number five, I should never say this, but it's true, is my favorite ingredient, right? Everything, every, every cookie, everything we make has the favorite ingredient. Well, mine is resiliency. If I could do it over again, the one thing I would instill in all my children is to be resilient. It's going to be the theme of our whole men's retreat. As Tom mentioned, Gordon MacDonald wrote A Resilient Life. It's the only book I read over and over and over again. In his introduction, Gordon MacDonald says, In the great race of life, there are some Christ followers who stand out from all the rest. He said, I call them the resilient ones. The further they run, the stronger they get. They seem to possess these spiritual qualities. Number one, they're committed to finishing strong. Two, they run inspired by the big picture of life. Number three, they run confidently, trained to go the distance. And number four, they run in the company of a happy few. And the book is really an exposition of the great men and women of Hebrews chapter 11. So we're going to go through all these ingredients. And again, if we can make them a part of our life, I think we'll be fruitful, we'll overcome, and we'll, we'll live out the purpose God intended for us. With the rest of the time remaining today, I want to talk about purpose. Everybody in this room has a purpose. I know you do. I know you know that God created you. He knows your name. I know all that. But we need to go through it one more time. From Adam to Esther to David to Jesus to John, we could look at so many Bible characters of purpose. But I want to look at a man who has puzzled me my entire Christian experience, and his name is Solomon. He's the writer of Ecclesiastes. Look in your Bibles, the first verse, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now there's so much we don't have in common with this man. He's a king in Jerusalem. 
Get this, his dad is David. That's a tough act to follow. David's still revered in Israel today. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's the wisest man to ever live. He's wiser than any other king. He wrote four books of the Bible, 3,000 Proverbs, 1,000 songs. Chapter 8, verse 24 said the whole world sought an audience with this man. If he were alive today, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Donald Trump, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins would all line up. He'd have the number one TED talk if he was alive today. Solomon was gifted in so many ways that we don't understand. In Proverbs, he penned these words when he was in a much better state. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is, is to be prized over rubies and gold. In other words, the summation of Proverbs, if you're going to get anything in life, if you're going to climb the ladder to achieve anything, get wisdom. It's the principal thing. And then this preacher, this teacher, I like what the message says, this quester. He went on a curious quest of life using the wisdom God gave him to pursue purpose and meaning on this planet, listen, sans God. He calls it life under the sun. He tried to make sense out of this world without including God into the picture. Message to congregation. That's the world we live in. Everybody's trying to make sense out of life without God. The result is the book of Ecclesiastes. Pull any verse out of this book out of context and you'll do a disservice to the Bible. Now, Solomon had an advantage that we don't have. He had money, and he had resources, and he had, he had the ability. See, most of us have the potential. We just lack for resources to ruin our lives, right? Well, Solomon had the resources. And if you look at the sprinkling of the verses I put up on the screen, Solomon tried work, pleasure, faith, money, business, fame, everything at a high level. And he writes the conclusion in verse 2, in the beginning of the book, he says, Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, NIV says it's all meaningless. Everything at a high level, he said, is meaningless. Now you're saying, yeah, that's because he's a preacher. Of course he's going to say that. No, he went out and did it all. Again, he had the resources. He indulged every appetite, experienced every thrill, scratched every itch. He bought every toy. And he said there's no purpose. It's vanity. It's meaningless. Not only that, he said, it's like chasing the wind. I build a great company. I work long hours. I have all this money. And I got to leave it to my jerk son who's going to spend it all and be a playboy. That's about paraphrase what he said. Jesus said the same thing. You'll gain the whole world and lose your own soul. But for one brief and shining moment in Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon comes to his senses. And he says this in verse 1. To everything there is a purpose... A time, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose. And you know what the next phrase is? Under heaven. Not under the sun. This is under heaven. This is under God's jurisdiction. In other words, plug God in the equation, all of a sudden, meaning and purpose come back. And Solomon goes, I get it, there's, there's seasons. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Live long enough on this planet, you're going to go through seasons, you're going to experience trials. You know, Genesis to Revelation, it's not a surprise. All the great men and women of faith have. But as we go through the seasons, there's a God working in and through us, and it's for a purpose. It's not a cosmic accident. And then in verse 11, he says, not only that, God has made everything beautiful in his time. And get this, he's put eternity in man's hearts. Everyone in this room has eternity in their hearts. 
You know what that means? It means, number one, you know life should be better than this. Now, when we think of eternity, we think of it in linear form, right? Like, I'm going to live forever. Well, that's true, but it's more than that. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you might know me and the Father who sent me. There, there's a knowing, there's a now to eternity. Uh, someone once told me, and this is the best thing I've ever heard, picture eternity this way. Have you ever been doing something where you look around and say, this is the best life's ever been? I was created to do this. It's the perfect environment. It could be as trivial as maybe you're out surfing, waiting for a wave. You're with all your buddies. It's a perfect day. My wife says that every time the family gets together, she goes, I just want to freeze time. That's eternity, guys. That's what eternity is going to be like. No past, no future. The, like the eternal now. The bliss of eternal now. God put that in our hearts. That's why we're restless. That's why we keep conquering. That's why we're going for the gusto. He's told us there's something different. And he's making everything beautiful in this time. Just because we sin and experience pain and don't do what we're supposed to all the time doesn't mean God's not working. Romans 8 says he's working through all things, good and bad. Now, I need to get philosophical with you for about five minutes. Some of you love that. Some of you hate it. We'll just bear with it together. The reason I want to do it is because I want to convince everyone that we were created for a purpose. And there's just some people out there who say, wait a second, I can't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God yet. I'm just not there. And so sometimes we have to prove things outside of the Bible. I think it's healthy and good for us. Uh, we have the new atheists today. In Paul's day, they were the Epicureans. Uh, they're the people that tell us science is supreme. And if you're looking for morality and purpose, you've got to look somewhere else. So we'll, we'll look somewhere else. I want to dip into my bag of biographies and pull out a man that I have just admired for a long, long time. His name is Viktor Frankl. He's a Holocaust survivor. I read extensively in the Holocaust for two reasons. Number one, it was only 80 years ago. Number two, the people that put six million Jews, who, by the way, were butchers and candlestick makers and financiers into gas ovens, were Western, modern, and Christian. Everybody hear that? Western, modern, and Christian, 80 years ago. Viktor Frankl was born in 1905 in Vienna, Austria. In 1942, he and his young family were deported to concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Dachau. He and his sister would be the only ones to survive and tell their story. Now, prior to being deported, he was a distinguished neurologist and psychologist. So the way he survived in concentration camps is he looked at all his fellow prisoners as an experiment. He would watch them day by day. Now, you all know, you know, you just don't take people and put them in gas chambers. You dehumanize them. That's the first thing you always do. And that's what the Nazis did. They took away their clothes, their shoes, their hair, even their names. They, they reduced everybody to a number. This proved to be very successful. Frankel observed every day people moved towards apathy, survival, and then just mere existence. As Frankel observed this happening each day, he posed this question to himself. Is there any freedom left to a person who's been robbed of everything? And his answer was there was one freedom that could be never taken away. He said this, and I quote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They, they may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof, if you're looking for evidence, that everything can be taken away from man except one last of what he called the human freedoms. And listen intently. 
to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So guess what Frankel decided to do? He decided to spend the rest of his days, even if he would die, encouraging the men and women in those camps and instilling in them a sense of purpose. He was fighting what he said was futurelessness. Futurelessness means you see no hope and you just start spiraling downward. You don't have to be in a concentration camp to feel this way. Some of you may feel this way sitting here in a very prosperous culture and environment. Maybe things have happened in your life where you just see no hope, no future. Maybe you're in that state this morning. He spent the rest of his days convincing these prisoners they had a purpose. He went up to one man and he said, you've written seven volumes on geography of an eight-volume set. You need to stay alive to write that last volume. That's your purpose. He would go to the next person and say, your daughter escaped to America. You need to survive and get to America and be a grandfather to her children. And one by one, he would convince all these people they had a reason to live. When Frankel was released as a survivor, he took his findings and he started a new school of psychotherapy called Logotherapy. That might sound familiar because Logos is the Greek word for word, which John the Apostle used in John chapter 1, talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God and with God, and he was God, and he dwelt among us. Frankel said that logotherapy was that which endures life with a sense of purpose, what he called the spiritual side of man. He summarized his findings in one of the great books of the 20th century, Man's Search for Meaning, that had three points. One, a refusal to believe we are the victims of fate. Number two, we are free within limits, the authors of our life. And number three, man, the, the meaning of life for man lies outside of us. Very interesting. He writes, and I quote, In the last resort, man should not ask what is the meaning of life, but should realize that he is being questioned. The question is being posed to him. Life is putting his problems to him, and it's up to him, man, to respond to these questions by what he calls being responsible. The responsible man is the man who, when life asks you questions, when things come upon you in life, you respond. That's the responsible man. He can only answer to life by answering for his life. Frankel said life is a task. The religious man differs from the irreligious man only by experiencing his existence, not simply as a task, but as a mission. This means he is also aware of the task master, the source of his mission, Namely, God. Wow. Wow. It took a Holocaust survivor watching his entire family die and people being reduced to a number, going through maybe the most horrific thing that any human being has experienced on this planet, to shake us at our core and say, everyone has a purpose because God's involved in our lives. Everyone matters. Every single one of us. That's why we call Christianity a journey, a mission, a life, a calling. That's why a book called Purpose Driven sells 30 million copies. The Bible tells us, Frankel tells us, one researcher said that people that live with a sense of strong purpose have a 30% less chance of contracting Alzheimer's and brain diseases. Psalm 139 says, oh, you have shaped me in the inside 
and the out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, O God. You're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am wonderfully made. I, I worship in adoration. You know my inside. You know my outside. You know my every move. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life are all prepared even before I lived one day. Wow. Every snowflake different. Every hair numbered. Every fingerprint different. Every retina. Everyone created with a sense of purpose. God told you. Viktor Frankl told you. The whole world cries out. I want to end with a thought. And I want to end with a challenge. Here's my thought. I was flying to Kenya. I had a bag of books I wanted to read. So I picked up Mark Batterson's new book called If. The subtitle is Trading Your If-Only Regrets for God's What-If Possibilities. The entire book is Romans 8, but interweave with Mike's life and his story. He writes about regrets. He said, at the end of your life, your greatest regret won't be the things you did, but what you haven't. The greatest regret will be the things you didn't do, but wish you had. It's the what-if dreams that we never act upon that turn into if-only regrets. In my opinion, it's the sins of omission that grieve the heart of the Father, not the sins of commission, right? Yeah, we think it's all, oh, you know, do you drink, do you smell? You know, we always look at that, right? That doomed the church, by the way. But it's the woulda, coulda, shouldas. Why? Because no one knows our God-given potential like the God who gave it to us in the first place. Mark Batterson said, potential is God's gift to you. Making the most of it is your gift to God. Anything less is a regret. You know why I read Mark Batterson? I don't need to read Mark Batterson. I know authors kind of get out of bullets along the way. Their books get worse and worse and worse. You know why I read Mark Batterson? He challenges me. He helps me not to settle. He helps me not to be comfortable. You know why? The guy seemingly has it made. Thriving church in Washington, D.C. Multi-million dollar selling author. He has a wonderful family. His hobbies are ridiculous. He climbs K2 and Half Dome. Kisses his wife at the Eiffel Tower on New Year's Eve. I mean, the guy makes you sick, right? Highly successful. You know what he's doing in his mid-40s after all that success? He's hired a life coach. A mentor. He's writing a life plan after all that achievement. Why? Because he wants to walk in the fullness of what God created for him. He wants to live with a sense of purpose. He doesn't want any regrets at the end of his life. You think Samson had regrets? You think Judas had regrets? We want to die with regrets. Here's my challenge for 2015. Number one, pick up Mark's book, Gordon's book, any book. Go pick your own book out. Make sure it'll challenge you spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And then evaluate your life against it. Let it challenge you. Now, we'll have all those books for you next week. There was a snag with our, our distributor. We don't have them today, but we'll have them next time. Uh, number two, spend January in fasting, prayer, and reading the Bible. Now, don't overlook this. Notice how I said all three together? Fasting and not praying and reading your Bible is weight loss. Admit it. Get over it. If you want to lose weight, get on another plan. But don't call it fasting. Praying and not reading your Bible is dumb. Because that's how God speaks. 
And then reading your Bible without fasting and praying is just knowledge. And Paul said knowledge puffs up and you'll be worse than when you started. So do all three together and ask God what he'd have for you. Number three, and I'm really serious about this one. Turn something off. Turn something off. Your cell phone, your iPad, video games, your TV, Netflix. Turn it off. Mark Batterson was in a a, a writing rut. And so for 40 days, he turned off all electronic devices and wrote his most successful book, The Prayer Circle. God gave us a finger. These are wonderful devices. You've got to turn them off. These wonderful innovators I named, you think they were sitting around playing video games? No. You know, I realized this one day. I was at my daughter's recital. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, she's my fourth. When my first, when I was at a recital for my first, I was present. I was engaged. You know what I'm doing now? Controlling the world. I'm watching the recital. I'm controlling home. I'm controlling church. I'm controlling everybody. Turn it off. And see what God does. Number four, choose to live in community. Too many Christians are lone rangers living in isolation. Join a small group. Join a serving team. Do whatever you need to do intentionally to live in community. Number five, attend every message of the series. I promise to work real hard. Tell you everything I know about these necessary ingredients. You need to promise to be here. The last one is counterintuitive. Can we all make a resolution to become less religious this year? You might be thinking, how's that coming from a pastor? Less religious, what do you mean? I mentioned Andy Crouch a while ago. I love Andy. I met him recently at a coffee shop. Andy wants to grow in his Christian life, so guess what he's doing? He's doing something real spiritual. He's taking up the cello. See, we usually think, oh, spiritual, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to fast more, I'm going to taking up the cello. You know, everything's spiritual. Everything in life's spiritual. Andy said, I'm seeking to flourish as a disciple, a follower of Christ, the one through whom all things were created and whom all things hold together, to explore another part of his endlessly abundant creation that I will only find on the other side of practice. Only on the other side of practice will I not just hear a cello's warmth and resonance, but be able to evoke it with my own heart, mind, and strength. Studying the cello also requires me to humble myself, to go back to basics, to remind myself of how little I really know or have experienced. Without these constant forays beyond my own capacities, I would grow dangerously sure of myself. It's strange but true, the cello is teaching me about both praise and prayer, both of which began when we allow ourselves, listen to this, to be made small. You know that's a spiritual discipline? To appropriate smallness, to see yourself small in your eyes. Do you know why the cello's doing that for Andy? Because he's a concert pianist. He gets paid to play the piano. But he said, this is humbling me. This is a spiritual thing. He said, I am also practicing the cello to wean myself from power and accomplishment, to place myself back in the posture of a learner a quester, a cultivator, a creator, to become a little bit like a child. Get this phrase, to detoxify from the too ready recognition and privilege that accompany even the most modern forms of success, 
to become available again for something surprising and new. Just as children flourish by growing into adults, so adults flourish by cultivating childlikeness, avoiding the spiritual hardening of the arteries that comes with competence and with experience. That is a spiritual man I will follow anywhere. That is a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the man I want to be. He challenges me. I hope he challenged you this morning. 2016 isn't going to get better because you attend more church services. 2016 is going to be your greatest year because you're going to get alone with the God of the universe. And you're going to understand your purpose and your worth and your value, that he loves you more than you've ever known. That every human being has unique gifts that, that only you can bring to the table and only you can mine out. And like Joshua said, some of you will choose life and all its blessings. And some of you will be like most of the 50-year-old friends that I have who all claim they were going to be professional athletes except for some coach who ruined their experience. <laughs> I.e., the only one that ever told them the truth, you're not good enough, choose another path, or got a major injury or they would all be NBA players today. Paul said, put off and put on the new man and run the race with gusto.